Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. This episode is all about the natural wonders of California. We'll start with the La Brea Tar Pits in Los Angeles, where families can get a world-class window into California's prehistoric past. You know, mammoths, mastodons, giant ground sloths, American lions, camels, horses, bison. Then author and horticulturalist Jason DeWeese tells us about some of the best places to appreciate California's unique diversity of plant life, from the Marble Mountains in Siskiyou County to the Eastern Sierra and Palm Springs. You get into the canyon itself and you, you look up and you see a ribbon of palms as far as the eye can see at the base of these dry desert mountains. It is spectacular. It is like visiting the Redwoods for the first time. And author and illustrator Obi Kaufman tells us about the California Field Atlas and his other books showcasing nature here, and where you can go to experience it yourself. That's all coming up on California Now. California is an amazing place to appreciate biodiversity, and as my next guest tells us, that's been true since prehistoric times. And one of the best scientific windows back to the amazing creatures that roamed California during the Ice Age just happens to be located in the heart of Los Angeles. I'm talking about the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum, where Dr. Emily Lindsay is Assistant Curator and Excavation Site Director. Welcome to California Now, Emily. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. So let's start with something extremely basic. What is a tar pit and what makes the La Brea tar pits such an incredible place to study Ice Age animals? So that's a great question. So the oil beneath the La Brea tar pits were we about a thousand feet underground. We've got something called the Salt Lake oil field. And because of all the tectonic activity we have in Los Angeles, you know, we're very famous for our earthquakes. Sometimes these fissures or cracks open up and allow the that that oil to get kind of smushed up to the surface. And when those lighter hydrocarbons like gasoline and kerosene and such evaporate from the oil, what you're left with is this crude, sticky uh, asphalt. And it is so sticky, in fact, that even just a few inches of that asphalt is enough to trap something as big as potentially a mammoth. And that's exactly what happened over about the last 50,000 years, right where our site is, is we were developing these periodic seeps, these periodic shallow puddles of asphalt, which sometimes would get covered by dust and leaves, or sometimes would get covered uh, by shallow pools of water during the rainy seasons. And animals would occasionally wander into them and end up getting stuck. So it's an active paleontological site, right? I mean, visitors can watch the science actually happen in real time right in front of them. Yeah, so that's one of the remarkable things about our site is that, you know, excavations are still ongoing and they're ongoing in public view year round right out in our park. You can actually walk around the park and see our paleontologists digging up fossils that were trapped tens of thousands of years ago right in that very spot. Oh, that's really that's really amazing. Um, so, what are some of the some of the ice age animals that scientists are finding in the tar pits, and I guess around the tar pits, um, and that folks can see when they come to visit? Well, so our most famous fossil, of course, are the saber tooth cats. That's um, the symbol of the La Brea tar pits. It's also the state fossil of California, Smilodon fatalis, 
And uh, it's um, we found more than 2,000 of these individuals. It's not actually our most common large mammal fossil. Our most common one is the dire wolf, which, you know, a lot of people think dire wolves are just something that existed in Game of Thrones, but they were real animals. <laughs> and uh, and Liberia tar pits is far and away the most famous place to study them. So, Emily, do you have any favorite animals that are on display at your facility? You know, my favorite animal is hands down the giant ground sloth. And here's why. So... <laughs> Of the animals that we have at our site, you know, the the mammoths, the mastodons, the horses, the camels, the bison, the big cats, the big dogs, like these are incredible animals. And it's it's tragic that they don't live in L.A. anymore, but you can still find them somewhere in the world. Right. Like we still have lions. We still have elephants. We still have camels, you know, somewhere on Earth. There is nothing anywhere on Earth that is even kind of like a giant ground sloth. In what way? Well, in that the only living relatives of that group are, you know, six pounds and hang upside down in trees. There's nothing like <laughs> a hippopotamus sized ground sloth with armor embedded in its skin. Now, I'd love to talk about time travel for a minute. How far back in time does this place let scientists look? And, and why is that a big deal? So that's a really great question. So, you know, a lot of people, when they come to our site, they think that they're going to find dinosaurs and they think that this is a site that's millions of years old. And and it's not. It's really it's only the last sort of infinitesimal slice of geologic time. So to put it in context, you know, the big dinosaurs disappeared about 66 million years ago. And our fossil record starts a little bit over 50,000 years ago. So it's just incredibly recent to a paleontologist. But it is also the most important time in Earth's history for understanding what we're going through today. So the time period that our site covers, the last 50,000 years, that encompasses the last major episode of global warming when we were coming out of the Ice Age and into sort of the modern period that we call the Holocene. It encompasses the time when humans first arrived in North America, and it encompasses the most important extinction event of the entire Cenozoic, that's to say the entire last 66 million years, which is the disappearance of these large, iconic Ice Age mammals from almost every ecosystem on Earth, the African savanna being just about the only exception. So what do we know about why everything became extinct? So that's a great question. So this has actually been one of the most important debates in both paleontology and archaeology over the last 70 years or so. And there's basically been two camps. So there's a group of people that think that these extinctions were a direct result of the climate changes that the world was going through as we came out of the last ice age. And then there's another group of scientists that look at sort of the pattern of human migrations around the world and say, no, these extinctions correlate really tightly with the arrival of humans on different continents. And probably it had something to do with, you know, humans either directly hunting these animals to extinction or creating other changes on the landscape that led to their extinction. Yeah, I mean, it's really cool that the work that you're doing there at the La Brea Tar Pits is actually contributing to the knowledge and the understanding of this huge question. 
Yeah, again, because we have uh, such an incredible record, both of the large mammals that went extinct, but also of the ecosystem that they were living in, you know, the plants and a lot of uh, climate proxies that we can get both from, you know, from the plants, from shells we find, from the bones and teeth of the animals themselves are helping us to paint a really robust picture and probably one of the most complete pictures of the last days of these animals that we have anywhere on Earth. Let's turn now to the visitor experience. Um, While the indoor museum has been closed because of the pandemic, and we hope it reopens soon, people can still go there and see the actual excavations outside whenever, right? That's true. Yeah. So that's one of the advantages of the fact that our site is in the middle of a public park. It's um, It's been open throughout the pandemic. It's a really important resource for people in the neighborhood. It's, it's a, you know, an oasis of green space. It's a place where, you know, people come and uh, they do their exercises and they walk their dogs and they bring their kids to play. And, and right in the middle of it all are these still active asphalt seeps. I mean, we've fenced them off now. So, so children and dogs don't get stuck in them, but, uh, but you know, they're right there. So people, you can see the seeps, this, the, the really remarkable thing about this site is that it's still active, right? Like you can see plants and, you know, uh, sometimes insects and unfortunately sometimes even birds like still getting stuck in the asphalt. Um, so you can see the way that this site has operated over the last 50,000 years to create and preserve this incredible fossil record. And then you can also see the area where our paleontologists are excavating the fossils and, uh, you know, pulling them out of the ground and shipping them over to the lab, uh, to be cleaned and uh, available for research and exhibition. So who's the typical La Brea Tar Pits visitor, or, or is there such a thing? You know, I, I don't know that there's a typical visitor. Um, it's, it is a place that a lot of Los Angeles schools come on field trips, so certainly we have a lot of, of students that come and visit our site because it's such an incredible place to be able to visit. Um, it's also, you know, it's a world-famous site. It's arguably the most famous paleontological site in the world. And so we, of course, get a lot of national and international visitors. But uh, it's also beloved by a lot of members of the community because of the uniqueness of the place and its location in this sort of important public park where there's often events going on. So it's hard, it's hard to say who would be the typical visitor, but I think it's got something to offer for a lot of different people. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems super accessible, like like you don't really have to know a lot about science to get why it's so cool. It's a tale of death and disaster, but also <laughs> the excitement of these enormous animals that used to live right here. I love the fact that the La Brea Tar Pits, you know, can show science in action right in front of your, you know, your face right there. And I'm sure it must be kind of great inspiration for for future generations, future scientists even. So not only can you see the the excavations happening out in the park, but the inside of the museum has uh, what's called a fishbowl lab. So it's a glass walled uh, science lab where we're preparing the specimens, we're looking through microscopes, uh, sorting out the tiny fossils of, you know, little mice and and squirrels and 
and songbirds that are also preserved in the asphalt seep. And it's a place where we have, you know, students and researchers working on, uh, on our specimens, you know, taking data. And so it's, um, it's a really good way to showcase the sort of the diversity of scientists. And, you know, in the last, in recent years, the majority of our staff, of our science staff, has actually uh, been women. And so we've gotten a lot of comments from visitors who have come and like brought their daughters to the museum about how happy they are to have a place where they can bring you know, they're, they're girls and show them, look, like this is a job that's open to you. Look at all these women doing science here. And so that's been something that's been, been cool to be able to showcase just because, um, you know, it's just, it's just turned out that way. We have, we have two female curators, our lab managers, female, um, two of our excavation staff are female. Uh, and so it's, it's nice to be able to showcase women scientists in this diversity of jobs. That's really great. If you can see it, you can be it, right? You know, and until pretty recently, vertebrate paleontology was a pretty male-dominated profession. And, you know, fortunately, I guess because of, you know, my personality and maybe the family support I had, I wasn't really hindered by not having a lot of female role models in my career. But I have had students, you know, come up to me when I've uh, spoken at universities and and tell me, you know, like they're I'm the first female paleontologist they've met. And they're so happy to mm. to see somebody in that role because it didn't occur to them that that was sort of a job that they could go into. Because I think I think those sorts of role models are really important for a lot of young women. Emily, this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun talking to you. Dr. Emily Lindsay is Assistant Curator and Excavation Site Director at the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum in Los Angeles. They're online at tarpits.org. You can find out more about Dr. Lindsay at emilylindsay.org. As always, we'll have links to all the places we talked about on today's episode and lots more on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. Working on this podcast, one thing that continually blows me away is California's abundance when it comes to farms, orchards, and vineyards. All of this delicious bounty and so much more can be found in the state's Central Valley region. Here you'll discover some of the freshest, tastiest foods and wines anywhere, running smack through the middle of the state from Bakersfield to Fresno and Modesto, all the way up to Vacaville, Yolo County, and beyond. The Central Valley is also home to many great attractions like the Cowboy Museum in Oakdale and the Jelly Belly Factory in Fairfield. And it's an amazing place for fun in the sun, from hiking to picking peaches. So whether you're thinking about a concert at Buck Owens Crystal Palace, riding the River Fox train in Sacramento, or sampling the wines on the Madera Wine Trail, you definitely want to visit the valley. To plan your next trip to California's Central Valley region, go to visitcentralvalley.com. That's visitcentralvalley.com.
From redwoods to palm trees and wildflower blooms to cactuses, California is a botanical wonderland. My next guest is both an enthusiast and expert on the state's plant life and is here to tell us some of the best places to go to experience it. Jason DeWeese is the author of the award-winning book Designing with Palms and is a horticulturalist at Flora Grub Gardens in San Francisco. Welcome to California Now, Jason. Thanks, Atarius. I'm glad to be here. So let's start with you and your book, uh, Designing with Palms. How did you zero in on palm trees specifically to champion? I think the palm is really an iconic plant. And I I know the word iconic is overused, but if you ask a five-year-old to draw a palm tree, they will do so very easily. There's there's no question what a palm tree looks like. And I think because uh, as as a child, my mother had this little tiny palm tree houseplant and I was able to connect that with the big palm trees out in the landscape. There was something just fascinating to me about this simple form of, you know, a trunk with this beautiful crown of, of leaves moving in the wind. Um, and I, I don't know, I think it was that the simplicity and beauty and also the relationship with my grandparents, because we'd visit Miami and my grandfather would cart me around in his wheelbarrow and show me his his tomato patch and his mango tree and his banana patch and his favorite palm tree, the royal palm. Um, and the, the gardening bug began at that age of, say, five years old uh, with my grandparents. And I think it was sort of part of that, that development and, and sort of happy memories that the palm trees got in the mix. Right, right, right. I mean, there there are so many amazing places to see plant life all around California. Um, why don't we start right in your own backyard? I mean, over the last year, you've given a few sidewalk chalk plant tours right in San Francisco. Can you describe what those are like? Yeah, so these COVID tree tours were started by my friend Mike Sullivan, who uh, wrote the book, The Trees of San Francisco. And I joined him along with our mutual friend, Richard Turner, who's the former editor of Pacific Horticulture magazine, in uh, chalking tree tours on the sidewalk for people to follow on their own. So what we do is we walk around a neighborhood, we write the names of the street trees uh, that are of interest, both the common name and the botanical name. And then we also include the country of origin, the land of origin of that tree, and perhaps some in- extra information about it if it's particularly interesting. So, so you're actually writing in chalk on the street in front of the tree. You're writing in chalk, right? Exactly. So we number the trees. Um, you know, we give people a, a little introduction, like here's here's where this, the tour starts, and this is the direction you go in to find the first tree, and then arrows between the numbered trees on the sidewalk. And it generally is between a mile and a mile and a half of walking around the streets uh, of a neighborhood. And it's a wonderful way for people to kind of enrich their daily walks. And we've gotten tremendous feedback. It's, you know, it's a funny convergence of our own tree nerdiness with uh, public interest. <laughs> people have really enjoyed it. And it's, it's really satisfying. And people can follow the hashtag COVID tree tour. And they can go to Mike's uh, website, which is sftrees.com, to see the tours posted uh, one after the other. I, I think we're up to... 27 tree tree tours at this point. That's really cool. Uh, so let, let's hit a few other spots around California. Maybe we can fan out north, east, and south from San Francisco. Um, let's start by looking north. Where do you like to go? Uh, my aunt has a house up in the Scott Valley, and I have a cousin who lives there. And 
it is an ex- exceptionally beautiful place uh, just west of Wairika. Um, so if you drive up Interstate 5, uh, you pop over the mountain into this beautiful Scott Valley. And surrounding the Scott Valley are a series of mountains, um, the most prominent of which are the Marble Mountains, that have uh, really amazing flora. You can see everything from the blooming California native dogwood to a unique type of conifer that's called the weeping spruce. Um, And it's one of these places where every several hundred yards you drive up and up the mountain, um, the environment changes. And so you start out at the valley floor and it's an agricultural valley studded with Oregon oaks, beautiful deciduous oaks. And then you get up to the top of the pass and you can hike out into glacially carved valleys with um, beautiful cold lakes and meadows full of wildflowers. It's, it's one of the most accessible and beautiful places to see a unique California landscape um, and botanically one of the richest places in the United States. And I mean, it it almost sounds like you could make a a multi-day trip up in that area with several stops, just, uh, you know, the mountains, the valley, this area that you're talking about. It is just mind blowing to drive up there for the, just beginning in Redding. uh, Let's say you're on interstate five, um, driving North, you go over Shasta Lake, which is really beautiful and fascinating. And then, you know, you, all, all above you is looming Mount Shasta, which is the largest of all the Cascade volcanoes covered in glaciers. And it's this solitary icy peak, you know, in, in just crowning the Sacramento Valley. And so you drive right past it and into what's called the Shasta Valley, which is this desert-like landscape, um, quite unusual looking. Uh, and then over the mountain from Wairika into the Scott Valley. So that alone is is worth doing. And then uh, when you go to um, Etna, which is one of the little towns in the mm-hmm. Scott Valley, there are resources for uh, learning more about hiking around in the the forest up there. And and then there there's actually pretty good signage when you go to the trailheads to see sort of what you're what you're going to find. Right. Oh, that's really great. That sounds you, you planned out a perfect trip for us. It sounds like a nice long weekend. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> and then the other you know, part of it that you can extend that trip into. So east of Mount Shasta and the Shasta Valley area in Modoc County is Lava Beds National Monument, which is uh, one of the treasures of California that nobody gets to see. I mean, it's it's very accessible, but it's remote. And so uh, it's a place where uh, there's an active volcano. It's probably going to erupt again in the next several hundred years or thousand, couple thousand years. And it's got an obsidian mountain on it. <laughs> it's an amazing place. So let's go someplace east next, maybe the Eastern Sierra. Uh, where should I go and why? Uh, Mono Lake is one of the gems of California and little known. Mono Lake is a desert lake east, directly east of Yosemite National Park. Um, it is one of the most ancient lakes in North America. Uh, it has an internal drainage, meaning uh, the water exits by evaporation only. It doesn't have an outflow. And so it's heavily saline, and um, it has a very strange ecology that's very rich. 
that has only two animals that live in it. Uh, one is an insect and the other, other is a shrimp. And then it has these flocks of birds that feed on these insects and live on the mm-hmm. islands in the lake. Um, and to get there from San Francisco, you can drive directly through Yosemite National Park over Tioga Pass, which is a spectacular drive of its own. Nearby, you can go to Bishop and up into the White Mountains and see the oldest trees in the world, the um, bristlecone pines. So there's this sort of incredible array of beauty to be seen just in this this little corridor um, to the east of Yosemite National Park. Now, you mentioned the oldest trees in the world. What do you mean by that? And I mean, <laughs> how do we know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the bristlecone pines up in the White Mountains, which are um, east of Bishop uh, in eastern California, um, are have been measured with uh, coring techniques, meaning uh, drilling through the uh, the trunk to measure the rings in the tree. And they've been measured to be 4,000 years old, some of them, um, which is wow. a, just an extraordinary. It's older than the giant sequoias in the Sierras. Hmm. And these are, these are not majestic, big, giant trees. These are, these are sort of barely hanging on to life up at high altitude in a desert mountain. Um, um, so hmm. yeah, these, these are trees that are, that have names like Methuselah because they're so old. Let's go South now. I mean, we, t- we touched on palm trees earlier when we discussed your book. So why not Palm Springs? What do we have to see there? So Palm Springs is at the base of the San Jacinto Mountains. And besides the amazing Palm Canyon and, and Thousand Palms Oasis, uh, you can take the tram to uh, 8,500 foot elevation in the San Jacinto Mountains and hike around in a conifer forest with unbelievable views out over the desert. And so you get this in, incredible contrast between the low desert and the high mountains of Southern California. Oh, the other place that's is a really exceptional resource uh, and a really beautiful place is Joshua Tree National Park. So it has a really different feel from the low desert that Palm Springs is in. And it's where the Joshua tree lives, which is a type of yucca mm-hmm. that looks like something out of a Warner Brothers cartoon, like a Roadrunner cartoon or uh, <laughs> out of a Dr. Seuss book. Um, it's got these gawky branches with these spiky little dagger shaped leaves at the tips. And then in the springtime, most of those branches are crowned with a beautiful cone of white flowers. So botanically it's, it's pretty fascinating. It, um, there's a place in Joshua tree called keys view, which is near the, the highest altitude there. I think it's about 5,000 feet above sea level. And not only does it offer a, a view that spans all the way down almost to Mexico, um, but it also gives you exposure to some of the different plants that, that grow up in that, that area. Right. Now, now, where can I go to experience the palm trees that give Palm Springs its name? There are two places right near Palm Springs um, that give Palm Springs its name. Um, one is on the, <laughs> on the east side of town, um, about a half hour drive out of downtown. It's called the um, Thousand Palms Oasis in the Coachella Valley Preserve. Uh, 
And it is a palm oasis uh, like you'd see in a Hollywood movie. And yet it's natural. It occurs along the San Andreas Fault Rift. And um, because of the two pieces of um, geology meeting up in one location, the water percolates to the surface right there. And it enables these palms to grow in this marshy area in one spot around a beautiful pond. Um, and there are just hundreds and hundreds of these majestic palm trees. You walk around on a boardwalk uh, through the marshy areas, and um, and it's it's just exquisite. And then completely different in Palm, almost right in Palm Springs, about a ten minute drive out of Palm Springs, is the Indian Canyons Park. Um, and the Kahuya Indians keep a park open to the public for people to see the exceptional groves of the desert fan palm in the canyons there. And you, you get into the canyon itself and you, you look up and you see a ribbon of palms as far as the eye can see at the base of these dry desert mountains. Um, it is hmm. spectacular. It is like visiting the redwoods for the first time. Um, and a lot of people who go to Palm Springs don't even really realize that these natural um, sites are, are so easy to visit and so close. Well, Jason, this has really been great. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. Thanks so much, Satarius. Jason DeWeese is a horticulturalist at Flora Grub Gardens in San Francisco and is the author of the award-winning book, Designing with Palms. He's on Instagram at Design with Palms. As always, we'll have links to all the places we talked about on today's episode and lots more on our website, visitcalifornia.com podcast. This is California Now. California is an amazing place to experience the outdoors, and my next guest is dedicated to showcasing why. Obi Kaufman is the author and illustrator of the California Field Atlas, an award-winning 2017 book that combines nature writing, watercolors, and a bunch of very cool maps. He's here to tell us about some of the many great ways to appreciate the jewel of biodiversity that is California. Welcome to California Now, Obi. Hey, all right. Thank you so much for having me, Satirius. It's a pleasure to be here. This is really great. I'm so happy to, that you're on our podcast today because I'd like to start to, by talking about the California Field Atlas, which won a number of awards and sold out several printings. Um, what do you think made it such a success? I think that we are certainly within some kind of bottleneck. We're at some sort of crossroads and more and more Californians are standing up for the leader that California can be in a global environmental movement towards reducing carbon emissions, towards protecting our biodiversity, and really seeing the treasure of California's natural world uh, as one of these great uh, superlatives across the entire biosphere of the planet. It is, um, for me, the real treasure of California, the real California gold, if you will, is our biodiversity, our natural world. And my books are all about that. Uh, the California Field Atlas in particular is several hundred hand-painted maps of how nature works around the state in terms of these big living systems, earth, air, fire, and water. And after you uh, published the Field Atlas, you're also you've also come out with uh, other volumes on forests and water and deserts. Can you tell us a little bit about these other deeper dives that you're publishing? 
Oh, yeah, gladly. You know, it's a lifelong project that I'm squishing into just about a decade of writing and painting like a maniac, uh, <laughs> drawing upon this lifetime of, of, of walking California, right? Uh, and uh, so what I've got here is this is this basket of books. What I'm, what I'm really writing is, is what I, what I think of in my head is the, the game of Thrones of California nature, where I've got (laughs) six books ultimately to, to, to write, to make here. And I've made three of them and I've got three more to go in the middle of those six books are nested a trilogy, the California's land, the California lands trilogy. And that's made up of the forests of California, the coasts of California and the deserts of California. The three books that I'm working on now, the forest of California is already out and available now. Uh, the second book was the state of water. So all together, we got six books, uh, telling the, telling what I believe is a, pretty concise, even though these are enormous books. The Forest of California comes in at 650 pages. Uh, <laughs> a concise telling of, of California nature, or at least the particular character of California nature that I am meaning to express. And all of your books are illustrated with your watercolors as well, right? So they're all kind of very stylized and all they're basically part of a set. Oh yeah, it's all me. It's all my words, all my research, all my paintings. I gather that one of the major ideas in your work is wanting to not just preserve California's natural beauty, but to help leave it in better shape. I mean, in that respect, what are some examples or stories that inspire you? Oh, I love that idea. It's true, Satarius. Like, like it's not just conserving, right? The, the the dynamic that you just described, or preserving. It's about restoring. I mean, one story that I think is really remarkable is the return of California condors. Uh, would you share that story for for people who who don't know it? Mm. Oh, I'd be happy to. Yeah, the uh, the condor is a biological relic, really. I mean, it's left over from a from an ancient age, the Pleistocene. It's the largest land bird in North America. I mean, the the, the bird has the wing size of a car. Magnificent creature. Uh, in the late eighties, there was there was only uh, seventeen living condors in the world, and all of them were taken to uh, into captivity, uh, ostensibly making the species extinct in the wild. But with the vision of returning them across their native range, which includes bits of Arizona. And now, uh, given, as I say, good policy, loving activism and good science, uh, we are uh, getting there slowly. Although they remain critically endangered with less than 400 living individuals in the world, they're not an uncommon sight over uh, the 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 valleys of Big Sur, say, or uh, down near the San Inez Mountains of Santa Barbara. Uh, you, it's always a um, beautiful, even even a little bit auspicious moment when when you when you are standing hiking, maybe uh, ten miles from anywhere, and this enormous bird flies over you, and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm being sized up. It is such a it is such an example of of the, the sublimity of of the natural world uh, uh, wearing away this facade of of mankind's dominance over nature. It's so immediate and almost visceral, if you will. 
Right, right. It kind of puts you in your place and as part of like the greater ecosystem and just the world. Oh, there's so many good examples of exactly that, Soterius, across California. One of the great uh, natural phenomena that is happening across California right now is the parade of wildflowers that is the vernal bloom that begins down in the desert about this time and lasts for really six months across California. You can follow the bloom from Anza Borrego State Park and down over the high desert of the Mojave uh, up to uh, it, you know February and March, up through like April is the high month of my home mountain of, of Mount Diablo, where you've got the, the lupin and the poppies, the hedge nettle, the carrot and the clover, the baby blue eyes and the fiddle necks, the lilies and the aster all coming up at once. Mount Diablo is such an example of, of bio, uh, botanical biodiversity in this regard because it, it sits out kind of like a thumb in the Central Valley, gathers mm. all the seeds from the temperate northwest and all the seeds on the wind from the desert southwest. And when you get these 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 uh, flowers growing next to each other, some of which are from the rainforest and some of which are from the Mojave and uh, in, in this really unique bloom to where finally up in July and August, you might be in the Sierra or in the Siskiyous, for example, at five, six, seven, eight thousand feet. And uh, you might be in a spring with six foot high wildflowers that tower overhead, alive, buzzing, even deafening with the roar of several dozen species hmm. of native bee doing their frantic pollinating in the short Sierra spring. Do you have some favorite spots in the desert where folks can really appreciate the springtime? I certainly recommend checking out our state's largest state park, which would be Anza Borrego Desert State Park, which is uh, a a very different kind of desert than maybe you get in the Mojave or in Death Valley even, which is uh, it's it's part of the Sonoran Desert. Or uh, one of my very favorites would be uh, – Mojave Wildlife National Preserve, uh, deeper in the desert, uh, right on the Nevada border. And a big one would be Death Valley, which which belies the name when you're up there <laughs> in a, in several thousand acres of carpeted wall to wall flowers, which exists for several weeks. Um, usually, exactly about this time. Here we are talking in the beginning of March. I'm headed to the desert this week, so if if you are, maybe I'll see you there. <laughs> and, and you're going to be going there for wildflowers? Yeah, I'm going there on a reconnaissance mission for my next book, which is The Deserts of California. Oh, that's great. W what's a good place uh, to experience mountain wildflowers? Mm. In particular, one of my favorite places would be the Crystal Range west of Lake Tahoe, where at 7,000 feet, you get a real sense of why that mountain range is called that when at sunset you can see the red light through the granite quartz along the ridge line and the place becomes prismatic in its effect obi you have such you know vivid descriptions and such a wealth of knowledge it's amazing so before we go can you share one piece of advice for listeners looking to experience california's world I would say get out and do it. We have such a wealth of accessibility to natural landscapes. And 
it's all still here. As you get out there, as you get to know these places, you can't help but fall in love. It's almost a biophiliac response, something <laughs> hardwired deep into our soul. Love these places. You become more from this place. How do you get, how do you become more from a place? Well, you learn, you go introduce yourself to your neighbors. Your neighbors are these, are the species, are the habitats, are the environments where all of this biodiversity takes place. Well, Obi, this has really been great. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. Thank you so much for having me, Soterios. It's been such a good time. Obi Kaufman is an author and illustrator of multiple books, including the California Field Atlas and the State of Water. You can find out more on his website, coyoteandthunder.com. His Instagram handle is at coyotethunder. You can order his books at californiafieldatlas.com. As always, we'll have links to all the places we talked about on today's episode and lots more on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. Thank you for listening to California Now. We hope you enjoyed this episode and get a chance to hit the road soon. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Soterius Johnson. You can find our show on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. And please check our website for the latest in the way of state travel advisories. It's visitcalifornia.com. <laughs>